Hub, which is our uh, research institute for the arts and humanities. My name is Jane Olmeyer, and I have the privilege of being the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. Now, a very important part of our community are our visiting research fellows. Um, and over the course of a given year, we will have uh, fellows coming for uh, uh, short and longer periods of time. And we're extremely privileged uh, uh, for the next, I think, three weeks to have David Reef here as a Trinity Long Room Hub Visiting Research Fellow. Um, he flew in from New York this morning. So, David, you're very good indeed um, to uh, uh, do this panel discussion this evening uh, with David uh, uh, Dixon in the chair uh, and with Cormac O'Grada, who probably requires no introduction for me, but David's going to be doing it anyway. Um, all I wanted to do was particularly to welcome uh, uh, David uh, uh, Reef. It's a pleasure and an honour to have you here, but also to welcome you all uh, for what I think is going to be an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion. My colleague and dear friend uh, uh, David Dixon is going to uh, be the uh, chair for uh, this evening's discussion and conversation. So without further ado, if I could uh, hand over to David, who will uh, introduce our two speakers. Please, David. <coughs> Well, <coughs> thank you very much, Jane, and uh, welcome to everybody uh, on this funny old night. Um, 
conversations, well, I think this is described as, you can't really have a dress rehearsal for conversation, so I've no idea what's going to happen uh, any more than you. Um, and our two speakers are probably wondering a little bit as well. Uh, now, just a few words of introduction. Uh, I mean, our two speakers, our two conversationalists, have some things in common. I hope they won't mind me saying, uh, but they are that rare enough thing, wise men who found large and appreciative audiences. But what's relevant for us this evening is that they share a twin interest, along so much else, in hunger and famine, of course, and in historical memory, public and private, commemoration, and its misconstruction. Now, we may come to discover just how they came on these two discrete sets of interests, famine and memory, but maybe not, because everybody here is invited to be part of this conversation, and you determine down what pathway we wander over the next hour or so. I'm just saying, it's one possible line we might explore. So just a word or two before we invite our two guests uh, to start the conversation. Cormac has been studying famine and its consequences, I hope he doesn't mind me saying so, for more than four decades, uh, amidst a great many other big projects in economic history. When his little papermark book, The Great Irish Famine, was published in 1989, it was the first theoretically rigorous analysis of the Irish crisis. And it came out shortly before the avalanche of publications uh, that appeared during the sesquicentenary of 1845, in other words, in the mid and late 1990s, and which has continued at a reduced rate, much reduced rate, since. Now, so many of the themes that have reverberated in conferences and exhibitions and publications uh, on the Great Famine, economic, social, cultural, uh, were prefaced but really uh, by what Cormac was saying in 1989. And we are fortunate that he's continued to reflect and uh, to publish on family ever since. The big development in his work over the last 25 years has been the inexorable widening of his work uh, in time and space. From medieval famine to the 21st century, from the North Dublin Union to Niger. And his 2005 uh, bestseller of Princeton, Famine, A Short History, is uh, required reading for us all, whether we're strategizing for, N- for the NGOs or studying uh, really the social history of pre-industrial Europe. Now, David, David Reef, we're delighted to welcome him back to Dublin and to stay here in the London Hub. His international distinction as a great contrarian needs no words of praise from me, uh, but I would just preface uh, our welcome with a kind of general point, and sort of echoing, I think, what Dane was saying a moment ago. When this building was being conceived, so to speak, it was hoped that the Longer Hub might become a great stage for the interplay of ideas between the disciplines and between the academy and the city, and indeed uh, a great deal further and beyond these shores. We hoped it would become a space for public conversation and for public intellectuals, but precisely the kind of visitor that we are lucky enough to have joining us for the next few weeks in uh, date. His most recent works, Against Remembrance in 2011, The Reproach of Hunger, 2015, 
and in praise of forgetting 2016 are only the latest in his contribution to international public debate. Indeed, I think contribution is far too weak a word, I think, to his creating and framing public debate on very big topics for the world at large, hunger, development, and uh, his term, financial capitalism, and yet very awkward topics for us here and now, like commemoration and its discontents. However, Cormac, you are the first to stir the pot. Thanks, David. You're going for only five or ten minutes? I hope so. Something like that. Okay. Um, so, um, the word famine is in the title, uh, but I'm a historian, so um, I suppose uh, what I want to say about the future is informed by my reading of the, of the recent past. Um, and so I try and address this question, can uh, the recent history of famine um, inform the future in some sense or not? Now, there are two caveats, and uh, one of them I'll enter straight away because it will bear, I'm sure, on what uh, David is going to say. Hunger is not famine. They're, they're very distinct. Uh, and I'm going to be talking to begin with just about famine. Um, hunger is a, is a more intractable uh, problem uh, than famine. And, and the second uh, caveat is that uh, forecasting into the future, at least into the medium-term future, is, is a modest game. Um, most people get it wrong. Um, I suppose if this were a, a class of students, I'd begin by asking, when was Europe's last famine? And uh, most uh, of the answers to begin with would get it wrong. And then eventually somebody would say, oh, the famine in Moldova in 1946-47, which I suspect some of you have not even heard about. But uh, so there is a sense in which you know, we think of, of, of famine in Europe as being in the distant past. And some of those students would have answered the Great Irish Famine. But really, famine is not so, so far in the past. And that famine in Moldova was not a small famine. Uh, it was a, a massive famine in uh, relative terms. It uh, killed a goodly chunk of the population. And a good symptom of how bad it was is that there were lots of examples of cannibalism people have been driven uh, by uh, hunger to uh, cannibalism. I think for the most part, survivor cannibalism. In other words, uh, trying to live off the remains of people who had already uh, died rather than murder cannibalism, which is another uh, category. Um, so on the one hand, you have Moldova. But then on the other hand, it's also true that uh, what Malthus wrote about and the way Malthus envisaged famines was already in the past, really, as far as Europe was concerned, when he was writing himself. It was almost in the past. Uh, so the threat of major famine uh, had receded in already in England in the uh, 17th century. And uh, the era of famines comes to an end in France and in Italy in the 18th century. Uh, so um, the race between uh, food and population had been won by uh, food in, 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 in this sense, uh, in that uh, 
by 1800, with some exceptions, like Ireland, like Finland in the 1860s, uh, poor harvests did not any longer result in famines like they had for you know all recorded history uh, before that. Moving forward to the 20th century and to the more the, the, towards the end of the 20th century and to the global story, you you can tell I think a rather Whiggish uh, story here because. In the, in the early 1970s, a series of famine killed uh, a few million people globally. Uh, you would think of the Sahel, you would think of Bangladesh. Um, in the 1980s, the global toll is probably around one million, and that would include uh, Ethiopia, it would include parts of Sudan, and so on. In the 1990s, the global total would be fewer still. So there is a sense in which, over time, things seem to be uh, getting better and, and famine is fading uh, off the map. Um, so in the 1990s, uh, there, there's a famine in 1998 in the Bar el Ghazal region of southern Sudan um, and in the Ogaden region of Ethiopia, again, towards the end of the uh, 1990s. Um, what about the new millennium. Well, in the noughties, you had what were called famines in Niger and in Malawi. But I'm not sure by any you know, tough definition of famine, what happened in those places really deserves to be called famine. Um, but then you get in, 19, in 2011 and 2012 to Somalia, and then you're back into the territory of serious famine again. But you'll note the big difference, and that is that uh, what happened in Somalia was because there was a war going on. Uh, there basically was no government, um, and there was no way of bringing in uh, aid, or it's very difficult to bring in aid uh, from outside to the people who were uh, at most risk. So that is, that is the very recent past. And what it suggests to me is that if we extrapolate a little bit for a decade or two, not go much beyond that, unless there are wars, then I think we can talk of an era which will be famine-free. That doesn't mean there won't be other crises, that there won't be hunger, which we talk about separately. Um, and then you can ask, why, why is this so? And I suppose... One reason just what I mentioned, a reduction in the kind of conflicts that cause uh, very murderous famines. The globalization of relief um, and the ability to deliver relief fast and effectively to where it is most needed. Again, you cannot do that if there's a war going on. It's also true uh, that in the recent past there has been rising agricultural output and also rising agricultural output per head in some of the countries which a few decades ago were uh, famine prone. And I would include uh, there Niger. And I just wonder what Malthus would make of Niger today. It's a very, very poor country. But population is growing there still at around 3% a year. And still, food supply manages to keep ahead of that. So you can imagine the kind of in implied productivity change this is something that Malthus would certainly uh, not have 
uh, imagined. So you have a variety of reasons there why so far famines in the new millennium, with the exception of Somalia, and if you like, we can talk about Somalia in more detail later, uh, have been uh, small. Now, I have not mentioned North Korea. North Korea is, an, uh, again, an exceptional case. And the trouble is that we don't really know what's been going on there. Uh, we associate famines with peaks, with, you know, not with steady states. And what you have in North Korea, it seems, is a crisis which has been ongoing since the mid-1990s. And I would be more inclined to uh, categorize that as endemic malnutrition rather than a famine. Endemic hunger, if you like. Uh, again, uh, we, that is something that somebody uh, might want to uh, bring up. There's another point before I stop uh, to be made here, and that is that governments were much more capable of uh, wreaking havoc in the uh, 20th century, and you can think of the big notorious examples, than I think they are in the 21st. No government would dare uh, try the kind of social engineering or take the kind of risks nowadays that were taken by the Soviets in the 1930s or the Chinese in uh, the 1950s. And I think that, again, is something uh, in the future that is uh, going to uh, make, uh, I think, a, a big difference. So um, let me just say in conclusion that despite what I have said, there are those who do not agree. And there's a recent uh, study by um, a fellow called Michael Devereaux uh, from uh, Sussex, who's an expert on famines, uh, which argues, and this is co-authored with some other people in Sussex, that we are now in a set of circumstances under which the threat of famine is more pronounced than at any time in the past several decades. And he links this claim to climate change, to a highly polarized political situation uh, in which the prevention of humanitarian disasters is unfortunately not very high among the competing priorities. That is one view with which I disagree. Then you have, on the other hand, Alex Deval, who has a forthcoming book, it may already be out, uh, which takes more or less the line I have been peddling, that the era of famine for the time being is in the past, subject to the caveat that there aren't wars uh, to get in the way. So that's my opening statement. So I'm going to have to I manage ideologically to break my foot, so I'm going to talk from here. Apologies. Um, I think I'll start where, uh, where Cormac left off, which is to say the, the connection between famine and war. It seems to be implicit in what he said, and I'm completely of his opinion in that, is that there's a correlation uh, between uh, famine and war, and what we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years is the decline of war, uh, despite all the terrible wars that you read about. There's no doubt that between, let's say, 1970 and today, that there are fewer wars, there are less, for the most part, Syria accepted, less bloody, they end more quickly, or else they become a sort of hybrid tragedy, but that isn't war, it doesn't have 
the massive casualties of well, all war, pretty much all wars uh, in recorded history. So for me, the question is not whether right now, looking out, certainly in the short term, it's, uh, I, I don't think, and I think even the Devereux paper, which is interesting, uh, doesn't claim, it claims the conditions are, if I remember it right, that, uh, that we could go back into an age of famine, but not tomorrow. Uh, and uh, I'll come back to the Devereux thing in a moment. But let me start by you know, saying the obvious, which is there's been a slight uptick, to use a terrible word, in war in the last 10 years. This is the first time uh, in quite a while when wars are starting to go, the number of wars are starting to go up rather than down. And there are a couple of wars that have real potential without claiming for a second to have a crystal ball. There's a Cicero writes somewhere that he doesn't understand that when two soothsayers run into each other in the road, that they don't both burst out laughing. And, uh, you know, so that's, or, you know, to use the American baseball player, Yogi Berra's formulation, uh, prediction is really hard, especially about the future. <laughs> now, it seems to me that right, right now, because climate change, again, I'll come back to it in a second, uh, climate change is, is, we don't know what's going to happen with climate change. We don't know how bad it's going to be. And we don't know what effect it's going to have on agricultural production. Because the, the, the obvious question is, will both the technological advances in brute production and the, in precisely places, as Mark rightly says, like Niger, that is the most unhappy place, um, uh, will that, those technological uh, developments that allow for more production, more job-resistant crops, for example, uh, GMO or hybridized, doesn't much, and that's not the debate, that's another debate, obviously. But will that uh, be able to keep pace with climate change? And that I don't know that, I certainly don't feel comfortable answering that. Because I simply don't think I have any basis for saying whether, first of all, how big the, the rise is going to be, and second, you know, what the actual effect on agriculture is. Uh, there is a problem that is predictable, which is this statistic, which is the statistic that most amazes me in my now very long life, uh, which is that more people live in cities than in the country in the world and whether feeding those people in these megacities is going to pose different problems than the ones we've faced so far, it seems to me, is a question that we can think about seriously. But, you know, the effects of climate change and the relation, as I say, between agricultural production and climate change isn't clear. I mean, it, it just isn't. But what we do, I think, what we can say, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to go anywhere near as far as Devereux, is that the future of famine is inextricably linked to the future of war. And I remind you that war, as Sir Henry Maine pointed out long ago, uh, it, it's war, not peace, that's the constant in human history. And only in the most recent period, uh, 
can we say in many parts of the world that peace is the constant, not war. Now, if that continues, I think the view that Cormac takes, that Alex Duval takes, and that I slightly more guardedly take, that we're, we could be looking at much more severe malnutrition, and we should get on to talking about how they're much more pervasive, intractable uh, malnutrition and undernutrition. You all know the difference, I think. Uh, the, um, but the famine will, will be, remain at bay, that it has very little future. Uh, the question, though, is whether wars are going to be kept at bay. And that, that seems to be the, the, the joker in all this. And that, I don't know. I'm going to just add one word about hunger and then you know, have a conversation, which is simply that hunger uh, is the product of many things. It also is, there's a knock-on effect not only of climate change and war, but of inequality. I mean, uh, without going the full Amartya Sen 10 yards, uh, you know, it is to some very considerable degree, he's right, that it's an entitlements crisis. It's an access crisis, if you prefer. And the global inequality within countries is increasing. Global inequality between countries is diminishing. I would remind you, uh, Rocco Mladenovic, formerly of the bank and now of the City University of New York, has done, I think, really good work on that. And he has a blog, in case you're all those of you who don't know his work uh, uh, can, can look at it there. And Piketty, of course, more controversially, has something to say about all of this. Um, but uh, there is a there's one aspect that I am going to you know point out, which is the response so far of the international humanitarian system has actually been quite good. Uh, it's had its failures and its ups and downs, and perhaps Tom Arnold, the former head of concern, who's in the audience, will want to talk about that in a bit. But the humanitarian system so far has broken famines. I mean, talking about Niger. There is a question of productivity, but there's also a question of rapid response. So that the famine in Niger in, was it 1979? Uh, the big one in the 70s anyway, is thought by some people, it may be an overstatement as such casualty figures often are, but to have killed something like 300,000 people. Whatever happened in Niger in 2005 didn't come anywhere near that. And part of it was agricultural production, but part of it was the the very effective humanitarian response, which in terms of breaking famine and breaking epidemics like cholera is very good. For all the words that I've written several books, critical of it, but I mean, let's be serious here. I mean, the, there, there are new technologies like Plumpy Nut that can save enormous numbers of children's lives. They're, they're just simply more sophisticated, more rapid responses, better communications. Even a skeptic about big data like myself, you know, there's some role to for it. But the humanitarian system is being taxed 
now or stressed, if you prefer, at a degree that I'm just not sure that response is going to be manageable in the multiple crises that climate change will provoke. I mean, we do know about water levels. And can, you know, the, the, the system in, you know, deal with, say, four or five crises with the effectiveness it can deal with one, two, even three. And that, to me, is the other open question in all this. And I, I think I'll stop there. <clears throat> I think just can I add just probably elaborating on something David said. And that, that is that yeah, NGOs have been fantastic. I think uh, dealing with the treasure fund, they are less equipped to deal with the issue of malnutrition and hunger, and that is because it's very difficult if you're relying on private philanthropy. It's very difficult to get a campaign going that never stops. You know which would be a campaign organized around hunger. Whereas famines happen, and they peak, and they go away, and there might be another one for a decade. And it's, it's, it's in the past, it's always proven relatively easy to uh, uh, marshal support in a situation like that. NGOs that rely on private philanthropy are much less, uh, I think, equipped to deal with hunger. And of course, that is partly to some extent, and one solution to this is that they become more dependent on the public purse. And uh, like the NGOs in Ireland now uh, are channels for Irish foreign aid. And as such, they would be better equipped. But in a sense, they are no longer NGOs in the traditional sense anymore, because they have been partly nationalised. You know, I, the other thing about that is, I mean, it's curious that that development, maybe slightly off subject, but, but the NGOs, willingly or unwillingly, are to some extent part of the privatization of the world that comes with the Reagan Thatcher revolution or catastrophe, depending on your point of view. Um, but now you see precisely their nationalization, and with the exception of of uh, Doctors Without Borders, which is this money-making machine and, and manages to continue to have very, very high budgets uh, with, largely speaking, private funds and philanthropic funds. Uh, everyone else has been, as it were, renationalized in this. Um, <coughs> yeah. <coughs> Again, I suppose we should just put hunger in, in, in context. I, meant, I mentioned Niger, but uh, if you look at what's been happening more broadly, um, food supply has been keeping up with population, but with a great deal of variation across countries. So if you, if you look at Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, the situation is not bad. In aggregate, it's not bad. But then you have basket case countries like the Central African Republic, like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where malnutrition has failed uh, to go away. Where it's, you know, it's if anything, it's on the increase again, and that would contrast very sharply 
with uh, places like Ethiopia and indeed Niger. Um, so, and again, in Asia, you would have the contrast between, on the one hand, say, India and Bangladesh, where the situation is not good at all, and China, where the problem is more obesity than malnutrition, you know, and where there is virtually no malnutrition anymore. Uh, so, you know, if you talk in aggregates, the situation is not bad. Uh, and of course, this uh, brings us to the issue of, of governance, and I'm, I'm tempted here to um, quote David. I'm not sure where this is from. Maybe it's from the approach of hunger, but it's wise, wise statement. The fundamental problems of the world have always been moral and not technological. And you know that can be applied in lots of different contexts, but it can be applied in, in this very context as well. Yeah, I think that you also, uh, the, this, this question of the state is essential. I don't think you can make a very convincing case, despite the very uh, uh, energetic and, and you know, well-intended efforts of many people who do so, that democracy is automatically uh, a kind of uh, a moat against famine. Uh, that's the part of Sam that I don't think has stood the test of time very well, and of course it stands the test of time even less well when you move from the subject of famine to the subject of hunger, which he himself has admitted many times. I mean, this is when he's talked about his disappointment with contemporary India. Um, but, you know, the, the, the Chinese state, which is very repressive, has pretty much wiped out malnutrition, except conceivably in the Northwest. Uh, and that also is a political question, because so much of it relates to the conflict between Han Chinese and the Uyghurs. Uh, but uh, democratic India, and for all its faults, India is a democracy, is uh, not doing well. And actually, the, the hunger statistics are not getting better, as recent reports have shown. And do you have the piece? <coughs> no, I don't, but they're... they're Ten years ago, these figures stick in my head. The aggregate, and again, Cormac's right to point out the, the, the countries that are not making it, but the aggregate rate of child malnutrition in sub-Saharan Africa was 29%. And the aggregate rate of, not, you know, again, aggregate, that means some states were doing considerably better, uh, in India was 46%. So, you know, and as I say, it's a democracy, and so that, that won't work as an idea of, uh, you know, how to solve it. Uh, it, 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 it. We know that from the Chinese example. And again, like in, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Ghana's been doing well, Nigeria's been doing well, Namibia's been doing very yeah. poorly, Cote yeah, d'Ivoire's been doing very poorly, and... Uh, yeah, it doesn't reflect yeah. the political distribution. Could I just pursue a little bit, David? You, you were saying there, halfway through the first set of comments, about the importance, and we're looking into the future, of the dominance of the urban world. Uh, and I'm just wondering are we perhaps underplaying the importance of water or clean water? And it will be water and clean water rather than food that may be the greater harbinger of trouble. 
Well, it's certainly the view that I, I'm not competent to talk about, um, you know, the relative weight of, of food and water, and obviously they're interrelated because, the, the, you know, the use of water for agriculture is self-evidently, but, but certainly that's part of one of the principal conflicts with, between India and China at the present moment is precisely over water. And it's viewed as a conflict over the future of food production. I very clearly view it that way. And you read, there are you know, all these defense analysts in Delhi who, who talk endlessly about this being the, the real threat of the Chinese, not the, uh, you know, the literal territorial disputes between Delhi and, and Beijing. I think it's, it's possible, and again, that applies to that that's where climate change coming. Having said that, you know, casting myself in the improbable role for me of the optimist, or at least not the pessimist. You know, there are enormous developments in you know agriculture using very little water. In what I think in my youth used to be called hydroponic, but I don't know what it's really called. Uh, uh, and if those Developments continue, water will be less pressing, and the and the worries we all have about the water tables in a number of different places will be uh, not of no interest, but of less moment. I think at this point I'd, I'd like to sort of start to draw us into the conversation, and I'm really just going to look at hands first and see. And I'm going to sort of play. So thank you very much for that um, really interesting topic. I, I was just wondering about uh, India, you mentioned India. Um, for the war, I mean, they're, they're kind of in a big conflict with Pakistan. Can this, is this situation influencing the, the situation in India? Uh, short answer is no. Uh, it's not the principal problem. I mean, in India, there are states in India. The, the problem in India, one of the principal problems in India, is to use the language of the Indian state. Uh, food is a state subject, by which we mean in you know in the European equivalent a provincial subject, not a union subject, a federal subject. The chief minister of state A is more influential than the union minister. Uh, or, and, and so you have states that, because of very energetic chief ministers, and also because of more prosperity, have done very well, and states that have done very badly. I don't think it correlates with either bordering with Pakistan or the conflict with Pakistan, which obviously has other uh, effects. Um, both political and, and, and economic on, on both sides of the border. And above all, it seems to me, in terms of Kashmir. Um, but I, I don't see it, actually. I, I think that the food question is one that has much more to do with, well, the, the derelictions of the Indian state than it does with uh, the relations I mean, some, some economists go on about the so-called Indian food problem because GDP per head in India has risen very dramatically. Yeah. 
but food consumption has not. And of course, what that implies is that India has a huge substratum of very, very, very poor people. Uh, that the, you know, the bottom quarter or third are desperately poor. It's also aren't, aren't sharing in, in, in the It's also gendered. Yeah, remember, particularly, it's gendered in many parts of the world. But it's so you have these very. When I was working in India, when I was writing that book, I was in India a fair bit. For, I say I spent about six months there, so we'll go into a lot of things. And they're the obvious things like what well, are called tribals, or uh, but there's you, the statistics are very hard to read because you get different levels of nutrition by gender within a given family, and that's. Uh, that's very different than Africa, for example. It, it's, 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 it's much graver in India than it is in Africa. Again, I think that is probably a lot more important than Pakistan. Um, less would be too complacent. Earlier this year, the UN declared uh, an ear famine situation, or a famine situation actually, in two districts of South Sudan and near famine situations in other countries like Somalia, Ethiopia, Yemen, northeastern Nigeria, all largely product of war, admittedly. Um, I wonder, do either you have a, a number of NGOs in Ireland are pushing the concept of food sovereignty in recent times, which I suppose in a sense is a corollary of the notion of entitlement, but more at a national level. Would you... Um, Perhaps comment on, on the feasibility of um, food sovereignty as a way of addressing the long-term hunger, whether it's practical or not. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what, what exactly do you mean by food sovereignty? Well, I, I suppose each, na each nation essentially being able to um, provide its own food requirements without undue um, dependence on imports and so on. That's the basic. Very I suppose so. As an economist, I would be against that as a goal, because I would believe in specialization and free trade and so on. And I would prefer to see you know, some of these African countries in very arid soil and so on, uh, relying less on their own food production and maybe uh, shifting towards producing other goods and importing food from areas uh, which are you know, uh, more advantaged in terms of food production. So, yeah, the economist in me makes me makes me worry about that. And uh, like the, the difficulty historically with that kind of notion is that protectionists uh, have always latched onto it. And uh, you know, right throughout the the nineteenth century in Britain, uh, we know there were people who wanted um, agriculture and particular tillage protected, uh, lest there be a war. Uh, you know, in, in, and uh, the government quite rightly said the best uh, answer uh, to that danger is to have a strong navy and uh, not to be uh, self-reliant on food and uh, that's what got Britain through and as a result living standards in Britain were much higher than they would have been had Britain uh, been producing all its own food. Hello, uh, so basically uh, since we've been discussing about uh, how hunger is actually the why hunger is, is a problem in India and I coming from India I feel that the basic problem behind hunger in, in India is also the vulnerable plight of farmers which states completely ignore 
and even like the problem of farming is also gendered because female farmers are not acknowledged as farmers in India. So um, the, their livelihood is so much affected by this that they, they leave farming and their deaths and farmer suicide, which is, you know, like media is not even uh, bringing this to the fore so that people can get, get aware of that and the inequality that is so much that uh, farmers farmers are just committing suicide because government is not at all paying attention to that is I personally feel it's it could be a great great hindrance in eradicating hunger in India. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's very much to add to it. Except that you know you you can't imagine a scenario in which farmers were that were there were many fewer farmers and the social effects of that would be catastrophic but in terms of food production there's no necessary corollary because you could have very mechanized food production that would produce large amount of food whether you could produce it at prices that uh, people could afford to pay we're back to sin in this and whether you could distribute it in a country where so many people are off the the, the communications the road grid. Uh, in other words, you know whether you could produce I don't know, you know food in Maharashtra for people, for tribals in Gujarat. I don't know if you could get it there. Uh, so that that's the problem with the argument, the pure productivist argument. But you you have to consider the chat, the possibility that you could in aggregate raise food production without necessarily granting livelihoods to. Farmers, but I think what you say, I mean, I agree with it. I think it's an important point. Mm -hmm. okay. Come. Thank you. Well, I start by saying I think the basic thesis advanced by Comer and, and David is, I think, is correct. I mean, I think we are getting to the point where it, it will only be in extremely rare circumstances that there is a possibility of farming, of farming. Um, and that is due to many of the advances that have been made since the 1980s, better early warning systems, and the whole, if you like, um, technology of, of response. But, it's, wouldn't it, I mean, I think David is very correct to say that the, the core reasons why you could have famine in the future, or certainly could have increased hunger, are relating to war and climate change. And the big, big uncertainty here is climate change. Very recent figures have shown from the FAO that um, this year the number of hungry people in the world has increased for the first time for a number of years from, I think, 760 million to 815 million. Now, most of that is indeed chronic malnutrition. Uh, and the effect of that, and this is one of, I think, the big insights in, in recent years, the effect of chronic malnutrition is what's called stunting. And stunting has long-term consequences, uh, physical and mental. And the big argument, I think, which is beginning to get traction, it's advanced, for example, in, by the president of the African Development Bank, who says that stunted um, populations will give rise to stunted economies down the road. So there's a, a deep, not just a, a human welfare issue here, there's an economic issue. And 
getting that message across uh, is going to you know, continue to be very important. But there's another issue which Cormac just touched upon, which I think is going to have to become much more important. We traditionally have used the word malnutrition to mean hunger. I think the modern understanding of malnutrition is that it has three elements. Undernutrition, which indeed is hunger. What you call hidden hunger, which is the lack of essential micronutrients. And increasingly, obesity. And it's a deep paradox that in many poor countries, there is a rapid rise in obesity. With all the longer term consequences in terms of public health, and costs associated with, with non-communicable diseases. So I think for all of us going to have to begin to, to, to recognize that there is a more comprehensive definition of malnutrition, which needs a set of different policy responses. And you know, I think this is going to be one of the really big issues over the next uh, one to two decades. Yeah, I, of course, I, I think that's incontrovertible. I, I do think a, a point that Tom obviously and Cormac both know perfectly, but perhaps should be made explicit, which is that we, we got growth wrong for a long time. We thought that brute growth rates necessarily meant good effects on hunger, but it hasn't turned out to be the case, and that's why the World Bank, for all my criticisms of it, you know, talks about pro-poor growth as opposed to growth to cool. But, uh, you know, the, the, there is, I, I'm not sure what the figure is, but or what the percentage is, but a very large percent of the hungry people in the world, or in the malnourished people in the world, live in middle-income countries. And, you know, that does mean we have to rethink a lot. I mean, a lot of things have to be rethought, uh, as well as things that um, I think rightly said, highlight. I just make two points about uh, global warming and the challenge that faces. Um, one is that economic historians, as distinct from economists, have tended to be rather optimistic on this issue, and some might say complacent, because they've been carrying out case studies on how um, farmers in the new world adapted to uh, the challenge of more severe climates, particularly in the US. And uh, you know there is evidence that as the epicenter of, say, wheat growing in the US moved west and north, that uh, farmers or uh, the people who were supplying them with seed and so on managed to develop uh, new forms of seed which were uh, you know, resistant to uh, the, the harsher climates. Now that's working in the opposite direction, perhaps we're talking about more severe climates rather than warmer, <coughs> warmer climates and uh, you know, there may not be symmetry here, but there have been several case studies uh, by economic historians, I should mention them um, in that you know, we think of economists traditionally as being uh, pessimists, but uh, economic historians in this particular instance uh, are maybe a bit, a bit more uh, optimistic. The other uh, point that might be made is that when we talk about uh, food and agriculture, 
we should not forget um, aquaculture, yeah. which, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, hardly existed in the uh, uh, mid 20th century. I mean, there have always been fish ponds and what have you, but in terms of mass production uh, of food, uh, there was very little. But now, uh, aquaculture produces more food than beef globally. Uh, that's a kind of a, a trivial pursuit fact that I hadn't realized, but I went and I checked, and I, you know, uh, it's true. And uh, the, the, uh, it's also true that uh, there are more fish bred and farmed than there are caught in the wild. And uh, these are developments that are going to uh, improve. It's not clear that global warming will interfere with this. Uh, there are those who argue that, in fact, global warming will, in fact, uh, help yeah. aquaculture. Um, and uh, so, you know, you, there, is, there is this possibility of uh, fish replacing meat and uh, caught fish being replaced by uh, bred fish. Uh, so again, to be, you know, that's uh, made all the doom and gloom. This is maybe one point that might cheer us up with. Cromach, some economic historians change their opinions, however. And you yourself mentioned how optimistic Tim Dyson was at one stage and how he's become steadily more pessimistic. Oh, why? Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think, you know, his optimism was pre uh, the worries about global warming. And uh, he wrote a book that came out in the 1990s, which was, again, it was very optimistic. It was anti the population bomb type of prognosis. Uh, and then more recently, uh, Tim has been, you know, almost ap ap apocalyptic uh, on climate change and saying that it would be very, very difficult to adapt. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say that that is uh, increasing consciousness and maybe better, better uh, measurement, but more better science as to what climate uh, change might entail. I'd say that's the answer. Thanks very much. I was actually going to bring up uh, innovation on the prairies, but I was going to take it in a different direction than you did, Cormac, because it didn't just happen in a vacuum, as you, I mean, you know, it happened because public money partly was put into land grant universities and technological research institutes and so on, and then and, and there was public education and agricultural education programs, and, you know, well, well, well educated farmers and all the rest of it. So, so the state was important in making this happen, and it was also happening right where it needed to happen, on, on the prairies, it was in situ. So if you think about climate change, if you think about, I, I don't know what technological change is going to be needed, but it's predictable that some sort of technological change will be needed. Where is that R&D going to happen? You know, is it going to plausibly happen for the benefit of sub-Saharan Africa in Western research institutes? Can, it would probably be better if it happened in situ again uh, how optimistic are we about that? And then also, when we have new ways of doing things, that's going to take investments. I mean, not just investments in R&D to, to figure out what to do, but there's going to be, it, it's going to be costly to put in place new infrastructures and so on. And you can see there might be poverty traps there. 
of various sorts. So those are my questions for the jury. Well, you've written about this. Well, yeah. I mean, I. I mean, obviously, all of this is true. The problem is, what are the, you know, some technological changes have few political and moral risks, and others have very grave political and moral risks. The Luddites failed, but that doesn't mean they will fail in India, for example, were you to apply the arguments you're applying to India. As far as you know, de technological developments in situ, I think the, the problem is less where, but who's funding. Uh, it's, it's really a question that you know, the Gates Foundation plays this very disproportionate role, both in global health and in uh, global agriculture, the two main interests of the Gates Foundation. Internationally, it has some very particular interests about education within the United States. Um, you know, is that kind of, uh, is, is the kind of oligarchic philanthropy model, uh, Soros, Gates, Ford, Rockefeller, is that a, a good model for research, even if it is in situ? My hunch is that depends on the role of the state. I mean, I always come back to the role of the state, as you can rightly point out, all the, all the educational infrastructure, for example, that went with this. I'm not sure states in Africa, with a few obvious exceptions like Ghana, are thinking about this very hard, uh, partly because of the political, uh, you know, the, the, the political, the, the controversial nature, morally and politically, of that kind. Re recreation of the system. Um, I'm a bit worried about saying this, especially in such a distinguished audience, but it seems to me that the distinction between famine and hunger is that on the one hand you're having this grand sweep of history which is national and international, whereas hunger is what happens to us and I'm thinking, you know, as us as individuals, and it's primarily about inequality. I'm thinking particularly about things like the hunger study that came out of the Warsaw Ghetto and the Minnesota experiment they did in, in America in the 1940s and 50s about the effect that hunger, persistent long-term hunger, has on the individuals in a society and, and how that society functions. But I, I don't think, well, at least I don't think either of us are arguing against that, but famine, you know, which kills enormous numbers of people and pretty quickly is, is, is a different animal. That's all the argument is. It's not to, it's not to minimize the problems of, of hunger. In Tom's, Arnold's quote about, uh, from the head of the African Development Bank, was it? The, you know, about stunting seems exactly right. That's a very great thing. It's not anything one would dream of underestimating. On the other hand, it's not hundreds of thousands of people dying within a year as in the Great Famines and in China, many, 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 many more than that. Uh, I, I just think it's, it's different. It's not a question of deprecating its importance. It's, it's not just different, it's more difficult. Yes. Yeah, we know that. If I can just slightly hijack the discussion to sort of move across, <coughs> at least for just a, a few moments, to your other interests, and namely commemoration. And what I suppose I, I'd like to ask, perhaps David first, is really, 
Okay, are famines remembered? Not including this particular country, but uh, in your own interest in this whole business of uh, commemoration, forgetting and remembering, where, where does famine and its possible elimination fit into to that? I guess, or do, uh, does it really not involve, uh, it, it become part of the debate on, uh, on dangerous commemoration? For instance, in the Ukraine. Well, I, I, I think when a country has suffered a very great famine within a relatively short historical period, that is a hundred years or two hundred years or something like that, that it has enormous resonance. I mean, I think you can argue that the entire development of modern China uh, after, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping is, to some extent, a response to what is one of the great famines in human history. I, I mean, it's not for me to come to this country and, and tell you, uh, you know, it's teaching your grandmother to suck eggs, as they used to say in the American rural uh, Midwest. Uh, you know, you know this is how important, symbolically, accurately remembered, or inaccurately remembered, obviously, to a very considerable extent, inaccurately remembered the famine is here. The Holodmor, if I'm pronouncing it right, as you know, Ukrainian nationalism and the Holodmor today are inseparable. Quite simply inseparable. Yeah, I'm, I'm commenting as it happens uh, next week in the States on a paper about the Ukraine famine of 32, 33. And um, it, it's, it's, it's not just an emotive topic, it's a very sensitive topic, and you have to be careful about what you say. Um, and uh, uh, the trouble is that if you said certain things in Ukraine today, you get into trouble for saying them. Um, and um, the, the, the issue is, is not just how awful the famine was, and of course this was a massive famine by world historical standards. There's no denying that. You know, um, you're talking uh, of a famine in the 20th century, which killed proportionately as many people as the Great Irish Famine in the 1840s. Uh, you know, and th th there's no way Ukraine was as poor in the 1930s, uh, or that the damage caused to the harvest was anything like uh, what happened uh, in Ireland. So there's, there's no denying the awfulness of what happened. But then the issue becomes uh, not just remembering that and remembering what happened to individuals and the awful things they did to each other, but whether it was genocide or not. And then you get into um, arcane discussions about when is a genocide a genocide. Um, there is strong pressure at the moment uh, in Ukraine to uh, make genocide denial a crime. And uh, there is something that I don't like about this, and that is that the, 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 the Ukrainian famine of Turkey is always coupled with the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. We will make them both. Uh, we'll make it a crime to deny either. You know, uh, as if, you know, in some sense they are, they are comparable. And they're not. They're very, as far as I'm concerned, that they're, that they're uh, very difficult, uh, different events. Um, but, you know, work on the Ukraine famine proceeds at different levels. There's a very, very uh, high-octane uh, political-type uh, discourse, which you'll get in Anne Applebaum's yeah, latest exactly. book. 
And then there is uh, this paper which I which I'm discussing, which is by um, uh, a woman with, with a Ukrainian name, although she happens to be uh, Russian, and she is trying to figure out statistically whether uh, there was excess mortality in areas which were more heavily uh, ethnic Ukrainian, controlling for everything else. And her argument is that the evidence for this is very, very weak. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to comment on the paper, and I think she's right. I think you know she could have made her case with some other evidence as well. But then, this is very different from the way the uh, Great Leap Famine is remembered, and there are strong, vivid, private memories of that, uh, which are being collected now, probably. 10 or 20 years ago, uh, that would not have been possible. Uh, but the, the, here again is a big irony. Uh, there's, a, there's a woman who um, is now, I think, based in Essex. She's Chinese. She's from Sichuan. And she went around about 10 years ago uh, collecting memories of the uh, Chinese famine from people who had lived through it. Some of them were very young at the time, but some of them were adults. And uh, she uh, gives evidence to about 100 people. Uh, in the course of the evidence, about 10 of them break down and cry. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's something that not necessarily traumatized them, but recalling it, they found very distressing. But at the same time, what surprised her, and to some extent worried her, is that in many of these people's houses, she went into their homes and interviewed them, there'd be a picture of Chairman Mao in a prominent place on the wall. So it's so different from Ukraine. And then, uh, but, you know, I think a, a historian would argue that Mao was just as culpable for what happened in China as Stalin was for what happened in Ukraine. But the, the, the discourse around those things today, uh, of course, so the, the, the versions of history we have are as much about the present as they are about the past, to, you know, to repeat a cliche. Is that a, a point that we should pull the curtain, or does anyone want to get a, a final observation or two in there? So a hand down the back of the um, Well, uh, any final comments that David or Cormac would like to make in terms of uh, where we've reached? We seem to be getting a high degree of consensus, which is uh, great, but perhaps... Uh, <laughs> I just want to emphasize this question of inequality, that, I mean, inside countries, that, that it's very difficult to see, even if you don't completely accept Sen's paradigms, but it, it is rather difficult to see how one is, uh, you know, one, is, one can reasonably hope for less chronic uh, malnutrition in whatever form, including Tom's obesity form, without, uh, without some serious transformation of power relations. Uh, and I, I don't see, you know, I mean, now I come back to the pessimist where I'm most happy. I don't see much evidence of that anywhere. I mean, there are interesting experiments all over the world, but I don't see any, I don't know, a single state, it seems to me, that is uh, really interested in these questions rather than paying much service to them. 
just to conclude, I, I mentioned that there are those economic historians out there who are uh, more optimistic, if you like, about what technology and adaptation uh, might achieve. But there's always the danger that they're wrong. And the trouble there is that the downside risk, if they're wrong, uh, is, is, you know, it doesn't bear contemplating. So uh, one shouldn't use that kind of argument to uh, say, well, global warming isn't as bad, isn't as much a threat as, as we think. We should do everything to try and prevent global warming so that, you know, these possibilities are never enacted. Well, I hope this conversation has uh, stimulated you to have an excellent evening's tea and a drink, which uh, we should be thankful for. But to be perhaps more serious, uh, I, I think the various work by our, our conversationists there, uh, subsequent work, are waiting for you to, to, to revisit. Uh, and uh, as I say, I think they've been far too polite tonight. I, I was expecting you know, the cudgels to come out at some stage. But, uh, in fact, without the country, we've had an extremely uh, enlightening discussion. And thank you for being part of it. And I'd like you just to join with me and thank our speakers. <laughs>